Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, during this new episode of our founder series, we sat down with Alex Arapator, CEO and co-founder of Zwitter. Zwitter is developing first of its kind filtration membranes that help treat and reuse some of the world's most challenging waste by providing tools that industry, food and manufacturing facilities can use to treat their wastewater and reuse it on site at or below the cost of standards discharge. Alex always had an interest in the outdoors and getting sick from drinking bad water taught him the importance of water treatment. While attending Tufts University for environmental engineering, he became interested in entrepreneurship as a vehicle for impact. Armed with his ID, he, has, he was able to tap into the large Tufts network of alumni and mentors and launch Zwitterco. We all know that water is instrumental to human life, but it is also fundamental to our way of life. And the way we produce things today use a lot of water. In this episode, Alex walks us through exactly how much water is wasted in making our stuff, where the water goes, and what he is doing to change that. In doing so, we learn about the main challenges of wastewater treatment, how regulation plays a role, the total market value of wastewater management, and the ins and outs of Zwitter's solution to a problem that is rapidly being aggravated by climate change. During the second part of the discussion, Alex gives his fundraising tips, including who you should target beyond traditional VCs and how. He then gives his tips on how to achieve a good work-life balance by switching off every night and how he does that. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story. 
learn more about what you guys are up to uh, in this exciting adventure to clean our water with uh, Zwita, which developed unique membranes uh, that treat the world's toughest wastewater. So welcome to the show. Yo, it's great to, uh, great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. So that's the tradition of the show. Before we start, if you can give us a 30-second uh, introduction about uh, Zwitter. Absolutely. So at Zwitterco, we are developing first-of-its-kind filtration tools that help treat and reuse some of the world's most challenging wastewaters. We provide tools that help industry and agriculture, the kinds of facilities that help produce our food, our fuel, our manufactured goods and services, and we help them treat their wastewater to a quality where they can reuse it on site at or below the cost of standard discharge. And there's two real avenues that we're trying to help improve the sustainability of manufacturing. One is help provide these industries with their own dedicated supply of water. So they have what they need to run their operations, to grow, and they aren't going to be as uh, dependent on public supply, which we're seeing more and more challenges with water scarcity and rising costs. So it helps provide that sense of resiliency to how the climate is affecting regional areas. And in the second point, we help create new products, new value streams out of these wastewaters, whether there are industrial byproducts like fats, oils, greases, and proteins, our membranes can help concentrate and repurpose these products into something like a fertilizer or a feedstock or some other new value-added stream to help justify the transition to advanced treatment. So let's start from the from the top, uh, as we like in this show, it's always to uh, to put the, the speaker as a human back in the, the center of the interview. So sure. if you can maybe tell us a bit more about, you know, your personal story, uh, your background. I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do besides uh, buildings with her? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or you, your best self as I always ask, like, who is Alex? Uh, absolutely. So if I uh, if I really rewind the, the clock here. I started out in my career as a, as a river raft guide. I used to teach stand-up whitewater paddleboarding, rafting, rock climbing, mountain biking, all sorts of outdoor uh, adventure activities. If I, um, <laughs> if I really try to rewrite the novel, I actually got Giardia on the Potomac River uh, just outside of the D.C. area. So I had perhaps a very early experience with contaminated wastewaters. Um, but really those moments uh, spending summers, uh, you know, teaching kids and, and working with my community in all sorts of outdoor and environmental focused uh, activities really started me off my journey on wanting to work in sustainable technology. Um, when I ended up going to college, I studied environmental engineering. And somewhere along the way, I ended up falling in love with entrepreneurship as a vehicle with which to have impact, deploy technology, apply engineering skills to massive, exciting problems. Um, and I found that it was a sort of a, a an an avenue with which I could collect so many wonderful people into our, our orbit from team members to stakeholders, customers, partners, investors, all of whom had this same shared vision of if we could take some of the most cutting edge technologies and deploy them towards these incredibly important, incredibly challenging water and waste treatment challenges, we could open the door to, to new sustainable solutions for, for all sorts of customers around the world. Um, that's been a mission that's really helped us stay grounded um, and, and, and love coming to work every day. Tell us a bit uh, more, maybe at like this, you know, previous uh, 
work study uh you know experience that you have because uh, it's true you're, you're still very young and uh, uh it's one of your uh, ma major i would say milestone of the, the work environment but i'm sure you, you had like different experience before that in a way give you a give you an edge to to, to start the, the firm maybe if you could share one or two uh you know piece of uh, experiences that you had uh, in the past that uh, gave you like uh, you know some superpower to uh, to become uh, the, the ceo of uh, zuta Sure. So when I was in undergrad, um, so at Tufts University, the technology that Twitter Co. Um, has licensed and, and is commercializing all came from Tufts. So um, I started out as an undergrad at Tufts and I was the head of the entrepreneurship group. I actually created the first venture lab at Tufts, which was a collection of student startups working on all sorts of different challenges, everything from uh, you know, exciting technologies coming out of the medical veterinary dental schools to, you know, a, a food truck on campus or, or someone who wanted to create another parking app in Boston. So there's sort of a very wide breadth of different ideas that I watched students try to pursue. And I was one of the conduits to help connect them with alumni and mentors to schedule pitch nights and other sort of coaching services. And what I saw as perhaps an administrator of lots of different students working on different ideas, one, I knew that I wanted to work on something like that myself at some point. So it's sort of built for me that that passion of seeing how many different exciting ideas you know you could, you could spend your time on. Um, two, it also helped me realize I was not going to invent anything of merit. Um, I have an engineering degree, but I am by no means uh, you know the the, the leading uh, force for for science and engineering at the company. So it helped me realize that, that my way to break through was to connect with university resources that had already helped bring new inventions. Um, into into fruition. So when Zwitterco got started, I actually went to the technology transfer office at Tufts, where all of the research groups um, that get state and federal funding and they help develop and patent new inventions, all of that research is owned by the university and the university seeks to either find outside industries to license and commercialize those technologies or that spin out startups you know, with students leading them. Um, so it was a way for me to quickly get my hands around this substantial um, improvement in existing filtration technologies was sort of the, the root of what, what was my master's program at Tufts. So I used that as my, my sort of thesis project. Um, and it meant that as I kicked off the work, there was already this fundamental scientific backing behind what we were doing. And I was helping to build the commercialization roadmap from there. And perhaps the, the third piece is, and this is one of the most important features of my growth and that I would recommend to, to anyone who's just getting started in, in venture building. I, because I was connecting so many of the alumni and mentors and sort of broader investor groups with student startups as part of the, the, the venture lab, it meant that when I ended up kicking off the company, I already had 200, 300 seasoned veterans who had done the entrepreneurship, the innovation journey before. And I had that immediate you know, call list. I had that group, that network to go start trying to not just raise money, but really vet and test my ideas, right? I would sort of go around with the business plan, talking about the strategies we were going to take for go to market or productization or manufacturing. And I'd have this army of incredibly experienced individuals who could help just tear that story to bits, tear it apart, put it back together, help me get that feedback, get that coaching. And it was the, it was the, almost plotting the line of best fit from so many data points, so many conversations, each one teasing out some new insight or improving the, the strategy um, 
that helped us so quickly accumulate a vision of, of where we needed to go and, and with a story that resonated. So before we, we start and uh, we jump into uh, into Zwitter Core, uh, I'd like to, to, to zoom out and kind of take a step back and uh, prior to the, the interview, we, we spoke together that uh, maybe a uh, Waste, uh, wastewater, uh, water waste uh, issues. Uh, that was really something that uh, we didn't have the chance to, to cover too much in the in the show so far. Uh, and I'd like to get a little bit like try to get your uh, your overview on this uh, on this uh, environment today. I mean, like put things back into uh, into perspective. Maybe you can start by giving you uh, your understanding of the of the wastewater uh, problem uh, I mean, beside the fact that uh, one day you get uh, contaminated uh, uh, while uh, you know enjoying the the pleasure of the of the river but on on a larger scale here like um do you have maybe some some data that you you could share uh and tell us a little bit more about like the different type of uh, wastewater sure. uh, and the source of uh, of production and maybe uh, the volume that uh, it represents annually. Maybe we can take like the the frame of the of the U.S. Uh, in general, uh, if that works with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, water is sort of the invisible force behind the manufacturing of almost everything that we interact with. Right? We don't see it. We see the food. We see the thing that we buy, but we don't necessarily appreciate how much water is required in both process fluid and cooling and cleaning, um, but it's really a, a necessary commodity in so many production processes. Just to sort of throw out some numbers here, um, in, in the meat and poultry industry, which is one of the industries that, that Zwitterco works in, um, it, it can be uh, you know, six gallons of water per bird uh, produced from every stage of the cutting, cleaning, evisceration, um, and sanitization processes. In the oil and gas industry, where we produce, you know, petroleum hydrocarbons and energy products, we could see anything from three to one, five to one, 10 to one, and in some aging formations, up to 50 or 90 to one water to petroleum ratios, meaning that so much of how we actually manage our, our petroleum production is, is moving water around and trying to extract oil from water. Um, you see it in almost every food and beverage industry, uh, you know, two to one, three to one volumes of water produced, so when you start thinking about all the different industries around the world, and each of these have their own use for water and end up often imbuing into that water different contaminants or different byproducts that show up throughout production, you have this collection of enormous, enormous volumes of water. Um, something like one-sixth of all of the world's freshwater drawdown ends up as industrial or agricultural wastewater. So hundreds of billions of gallons a day. Um, and this is everything that goes down the drain to municipal treatment plants or is discharged to the ocean or to rivers or other water bodies. A lot of times it is land applied, um, just sort of sprayed out on, on fields, either for irrigation or just as a means of environmental disposal. Um, and so part of why it is this force that for so long has, has perhaps been invisible is because it's been widely abundant. It's been fairly inexpensive. It's sort of been something you can access from groundwater sources or surface water sources, or you get it from the utility. But as we've seen climate patterns shift, as we've seen sustainability become much more of a, a corporate mission and driver for, for so many companies, and as we've seen challenges with contamination lead to public health concerns, environmental concerns, soil uh, challenges, there has been a, a big shift in the regulatory environment, and, and even in the last year, a massive shift in the amount of funding and investment that has gone into paying attention to our infrastructure to manage water. So to give you just a couple examples of how this landscape is changing, 
um, we see things like uh, new regulations coming out from, from the EPA on emerging contaminants of concern. Right? We've heard a lot about PFAS um, or other micropollutants that show up in wastewater. Um, we've seen a lot of new funding come out from the uh, from the infrastructure plans. We've seen a lot of attention coming out of um, intergovernmental organizations and from sort of the, the climate accords and, and where governments are, are speaking about these challenges in a public forum. Um, we've seen uh, a, a big change in the cost drivers for water, especially in water scarce regions. There's been something like 8% year over year growth in the cost of utility water for the past two or three decades. So if you put your plant you know, somewhere 30 years ago that wasn't under water stress, your cost to continue operating your facility today might be wildly different just based on how those utility costs have changed over time. So these sort of connection of, of market forces, cost of water, availability of water, attention on the contamination and environmental impacts of discharge, and the, the desire to reduce our water footprint and have better resiliency to future climate change, all of these things have brought water much higher in, in focus. And that's why we're seeing a substantial increase in venture investment into water companies. There's been a big boom of new entrepreneurs and technologies that are that are being developed over the last four or five years. Um, and, and we're seeing customers, really customers and partners who corporate sustainability missions always have an energy, a waste and a water reduction goal. And that's all speaking to the sort of collective awareness that we have to be better about how we preserve the resource if it's still going to be there for us. I'd like to double click a little bit on the uh, ratio of uh, wastewater that's like uh, treated uh, in in a way purified uh, versus the one that has like uh, goes directly to um, you know to the to the sea or the rivers so, or uh, what is the ratio today? Do you, do you have any any idea on that? Like I mean, what's the effort still need to be accomplished in a way uh, to go hopefully uh, one day to this hundred uh, percent clean water? And what are the main categories of like you know existing technology in a way that are like uh, allowing uh, you know those uh, those those treatment and this water to be to be treated um if you could maybe uncover that a little bit for the, the audience to understand a bit better the the context yeah it's it's a tough question to be able to answer with with hard data this is a there's so many industries and so many facilities few of which are tracked on a um, sort of a, a granular enough basis to be able to say, of all the water that's used for industry, 90%, 95% is discharged and 5% is recycled. It, some industries are much better than others. Some some industries have embedded practices where they are taking their water and reusing it. Um, others, it has just been standard cost of doing business to, to discharge. I would say as a, as a rough order of magnitude, we assume that somewhere between five to 10% of all industrial wastewater is reused for you know, on-site purposes, whether it's for direct or indirect uh, process reuse. Um, but there's vast volumes of water that that are still just discharged. And, and many industries still assume that discharge is, is the standard practice. Um, part of why it has not shifted sooner to having people take, treat, and recycle as much water as they can at their specific facility is because of the cost of technologies or the challenge that is required to get you back to a water that is of a quality where it's safe to reuse and you're not gonna harm your product or create um, potential quality or sanitation challenges. 
So when we think about getting water to what is quote unquote pure or, or pure enough that it's often considered a, a safe enough standard to be used as a, as a processed fluid, you're often trying to get to some level of desalination. So you have technologies like reverse osmosis um, or ion exchange that are going to help do molecular separations out of the water. You're probably looking at some form of UV or ozone-based disinfectant, um, and you're really trying to get it back to, you have sort of that visual in your mind, clear water, right? No color, no turbidity, no odor. Um, and so you have to get down to very fine levels of polishing. Now, not every use case requires it to be quote unquote potable, right? If you're just trying to return water to wash down equipment, there are less uh, intense standards of, of treatment that would be required. And that's an important distinction that not every water has to get back to absolutely ultra pure for it to start being eligible for reuse. And that's almost a mindset, mindset shift that we're encouraging is think about all the places you need water and think about the quality that you need at each stage. Not You don't have to necessarily spend the money to get you to complete treatment for, for every potential use case. But where you do want to get to very pure water, water that's safe as in, in a food process or, or in a, a high purity process, you often have to get to that desalination step. And this is where we believe the industry has, has missed uh, sort of a, a, a clear technology opportunity, which is I have an industrial wastewater. It might be full of solids, organic materials, inorganic materials. Often it's sort of a, imagine what goes down the garbage disposal, right? There's a lot that's in there that comes from all sorts of shapes and sizes of compounds that, that end up down the drain. While we are really good at desalination, if you have a clean stream, right? We take seawater and we desalinate that to produce potable water that happens all over the world. But in order to take an industrial wastewater and make it eligible for desalination, to sort of do enough pretreatment that you're going to be able to use a tool like reverse osmosis efficiently, you have to do a, a removal of often challenging organic compounds. You have to take out the fats, oils, greases, or dissolved organic compounds that would ruin a downstream reverse osmosis or, or polishing treatment step. And this is the, the challenge that Zwitterko is trying to solve by using a membrane that is immune to clogging, a membrane that can separate fats and oils and is never going to receive the kind of wear and tear or degradation that would ruin a conventional filter. We can do the removal of the organic material and open the door to do final polishing with something like reverse osmosis in an integrated process that is cost effective based on your alternative means of disposal. And while the world has used different kinds of technologies for organic treatment, biological processes, chemical processes, you'll find that more often than not, there are sort of industry specific options that are the minimum that you need to do to be able to be within compliance. Rarely is there a complete organic treatment solution and polishing solution that gets you to reuse quality water. That is something I'd say the industry has for the most part, deemed either too expensive or too technologically challenging. Do you see, like, maybe you can unveil a bit quickly uh, that part, like, do you see any, like, uh, uh, type of, of um, material that are really, like, challenging? I would say, like, I mean, out of this, like, whole spectrum of the, the wastewater uh, in itself, what are the subcategories of the wastewater uh, treatment where it's really extremely difficult to... Uh, uh, to purify or at least to, re to reach the standards that can be reused uh, in, inside of the process. Maybe not even speaking about like, you know, uh, being uh, drinkable water, but just uh, being reusable. What are the different components where it's really uh, challenging uh, to, to, to purify and to, to clean in a way? 
Yeah, we we have, I would say, a pretty well understood way to remove bulk solids, large particulate material, things, you know, visibly that, that you can see because you have gravity on your side. So you can use settling or flotation based techniques. You could use centrifugation. There are bulk screening tools. So, you know, you take out the things that, that can be easily removed from, from a bulk perspective. And now you're down to the fine particles or the fine materials that are suspended, right? They won't just settle out. You can keep your jar of water on the table and it's going to stay turbid and colored and it's not going to easily striate into those different compound layers. And that's where you start to run into some of the, the, the first set of challenges. So now you can't necessarily use just a direct you know, density-based or, or gravity-based treatment. Now you're talking about adding coagulation or flocculation chemicals to try and assist with flotation or to uh, increase the rate of settling. You're looking at biological treatments to try and just consume the organic material. Um, and this is where I'd say the, some of the most challenging compounds are these small emulsified or suspended materials that are recalcitrant, that are that are difficult to consume biologically. And these are like your oils, your greases, um, and that would be completely detrimental to any sort of direct filtration tool because of how quickly they would clog the filter. So when you start talking about small sort of suspended, emulsified, dissolved, hard to digest, hard to remove organic compounds, you're kind of stuck. It's usually at that stage, if that's what's still in your fluid and you don't, you know, you're trying to throw the kitchen sink of different types of treatment technologies at it, more often the, the most cost-effective solution is to load it up onto a truck and haul it away to a digester or to a municipal treatment plant or to some place where you have a, you know, a, a full water treatment plant at, at your disposal. Um, and that cost of hauling is a very painful economic uh, solution for, for most companies. I mean, loading water up onto a truck and driving it away is is rarely an economically efficient option, but hauling is still a primary route of disposal in lots of industries because of that challenge with the hard to treat dissolved or suspended organic material. So speaking a little bit about like the, the actors in the in that market of the, the clean water or the water to, uh, wastewater treatment, like is it more like a you know private market, public market? What are the, the actors there? Like, uh, is it like ruled by, you know, uh, private entities, commercial entities, or more like the uh, public sectors is taking, I mean, trying to, to take over and the municipalities? I mean, how is the, the, the market, you know, uh, what was the dynamic in the market right now? And, uh, and what is the, the, the amount of funding that we're talking about here in this, uh, in this market? I mean, I believe it's a multi-billion dollar, uh, you know, industry, you know? So Switterco spends a lot of its time focused on industrial customers and, and partners. So we're talking with companies that are privately owned, that have, again, uh, sort of spending power, are encouraged to achieve sustainability goals, have the direct economic uh, consequences or benefits of, of how they manage their resources, um, and that are often able to move most quickly and sort of adapt most urgently to, to their situation. So these are your, your food producers. These are your, um, your uh, we, we work a lot in, for example, in, in anaerobic digestion. So these are your project developers that own um, waste treatment and biogas development facilities. These might be your private landfills. Um, you start to get into more publicly owned treatment works when you start talking about municipal treatment plants. Um, even some landfills, right, might be publicly owned. Um, but there you're talking about perhaps a different model for technology adoption. Um, municipal treatment projects are, are often 
work through much longer time frames. They have a different way of uh, accessing the capital that they would need to make updates to their infrastructure. Um, there are not necessarily the same um, buying levers or incentives for a municipal treatment plant to try and invest in new or breakthrough technologies that a, a private company might have. So Zwitterco's entry to the market has been focused on you know, sort of the early adopter profile. Technology hungry has a very acute, immediate wastewater challenge, um, can see the, the financial ROI and has either the balance sheet or the, the financing capability to make those investments. Um, the, you know, the, the, you know, as we've seen, even from some of the infrastructure funding that's come out of recent legislation, um, there have been now billions of dollars awarded to projects to update our, our treatment infrastructure. And this is not just municipal treatment plants, but this is our pipes, right? This is our uh, conveyance structures trying to help update aging equipment so that you're not having the same kind of heavy metal contamination or leakages or other challenges that make it difficult for us to, on a sort of municipal or utility scale, um, manage water efficiently. So there, there really are sort of different um, avenues, depending on who's trying to use or consume technology. Um, there's a lot of money flowing in from private equity firms um, and infrastructure funds that are trying to invest in owning and, and sort of acquiring treatment assets, which are these large capital deployments that have long-term cash flows that you can predict and that are a required feature of society. So they're sort of resilient to, to changes or swings in the market. Um, so I'd say there's, there's a lot of different sources trying to attack different problems. Um, but as a new technology company, I'd say it is sort of most directly easy for us to have a one-to-one -one conversation with the customer who has that million gallons a day treatment requirement, and they are facing water shortages or paying a really expensive means for discharge and look at the future and say, I want to be on the leading edge of sort of pioneering sustainability in my industry. I want to be one of the first ones to try and get to 80, 90% water recycling so that the rest of the industry can see what we've been able to accomplish here. Those are those are the relationships that, that Zwitterco is focused on. Speaking about the, the re regulatory framework here, uh, can you tell us maybe like one of the two or three pieces of uh, regulation that in a way is forcing and pushing your uh, your customers and the industry in general to uh, to go to, uh, towards this 100% uh, uh, clean, cleaner water, uh, I would say. Uh, do, do you see any any piece of regulation that might be missing that uh, should be in place or will come in the in the future uh, that can also be a good tailwind for this uh, oil industry? Sure. So you see regulation showing up on two sides. There's both water directly connect or regulation directly connected to either consumption of water or discharge of water and the associated quality specifications. Or you have legislation that is encouraging industries to move in a different direction with their general practices, and water is implicated in that. So let me perhaps give two examples. Um, in the meat and poultry industry right now, there's been um, some lawsuits that have been in uh, in sort of review with the EPA for, for quite some time on updating the treatment standards, just the water that's coming out of slaughterhouses and the quality that's being discharged and sort of awareness on, on environmental ramifications. So there's been uh, an attempt and an effort to, to boost those standards and apply greater expectations of treatment before discharge. Um, and that's something where you're seeing a great collection of companies really rise to that challenge saying, you know, these regulations were established decades ago. We have more information about what the, the quality requirements and implications should be. And 
companies are stepping up and saying, we want to make these investments to get to you know, better better water quality down the drain or, or improve the, the water reuse in their facilities. On the sort of other side, we have regulations like um, what we're seeing coming out of California, and we've also seen it in Massachusetts and New York, where there's been this big push to divert organic waste from landfills towards anaerobic digestion or compost as a way to not have so much greenhouse gas emission coming from landfills, but rather put that towards uh, sort of a, a, a vessel that can capture the biogas and produce renewable natural gas out of that as a more sustainable use for, for those waste products. And so when we think about that as a sort of a legislative push and how much funding has come into the growth of anaerobic digestion in the U.S. over the last few years, the implications on that relate to, to water, because when you create digestion capacity and as you're producing biogas, there's a liquid waste stream, digestate, that has to be managed. And for, uh, I would say, the majority of, of our history, digestate has been land applied. That's been the primary means of disposal. But we're seeing changes in nutrient regulations. We're seeing changes in uh, measures to protect water bodies from runoff and eutrophication. And so, or, and, and actually, as we see a lot of digestion growth in, in cities, there just isn't the land with which to apply it. So you're looking at longer and longer hauling challenges and sort of city ordinances about how much trucks are coming in and out every day, moving, moving water around. So here you have a legislative push to help grow the digestion industry and grow renewable natural gas development. But you have this water challenge that is constraining how efficiently these new projects can get permitted and can get uh, commissioned. So here, as we work with anaerobic digestion developers on ways to extract the organic material to produce organic fertilizers and to ultimately produce clean water that can be discharged safely or can be reused for livestock watering or irrigation, you now create this um, sort of unlock to remove that constraint so that as you have funding and incentive to produce digesters, there's an answer about what you're going to do with your wastewater on the back end. Let's go a little bit uh, deeper into uh, into Twitter. I'd like to uh, to go back to uh, the, the the story and the I would say like the, the story behind it. I mean, um, you you mentioned that uh, I mean you were not like the the scientific uh, in the in the team. Uh, it's most likely your your co-founder. Um, so maybe you can tell us a bit more about like you know uh, how did you guys meet? What was the the story behind it? Uh, uh, and uh, what is the you know what's what did you guys identify as a, the initial gap uh, that led to the, the current uh, version of uh, of Twitter? I mean, why did Twitter, in a way, had to exist? Sure. So I was really fortunate uh, very early on as I was thinking about founding the company, and we were I was just finishing up that master's program where I built the business plan, and we started to win a couple competitions and, and awards. So there's a little bit of momentum behind us and some investment interest, um, but to take it out of what was a uh, commercialization exercise and into a company, we had to bring on the skill sets and we had to bring on the, the, the mind share for how are you gonna manufacture this? What is the technology actually gonna do for customers and how are we gonna demonstrate that from in-field performance standpoint? How are we going to build a company that's prepared to take on investment and scale and knows how to deploy those resources to all sorts of R&D, you know, early stage R&D projects at first, but eventually, you know, moving into delivering product and, and establishing quality standards and everything that's needed to, to be an effective business. Um, and I was I was incredibly fortunate to meet uh, my two co-founders, Chris Drover and Chris Roy, 
Um, Chris Drover was finishing up a master's program at Tufts. So the inventor of the technology, the professor who led the research group actually introduced the two of us. Um, so Chris had had um, almost a decade of experience in industry working at um, a, actually a different membrane company. And so learned a lot of early stage startup lessons about what, what efficient use of capital looks like and how important it is to get to your MVP quickly and to get product in the hands of customers and validated before you take on you know, too much capital that you just don't necessarily know what outcome the company is going to be led to at that point. So Chris had a lot of that perhaps startup learning or startup scar tissue that helped guide some of our early decisions um, and was just an absolute master of everything from the polymer chemistry to how we uh, you know, scale it up from both small volume and large volume manufacturing practices, how we build an R&D organization that can take the technology development forward. Um, Chris Drover really, really held the reins um, on, on all of that very early on. And then my other co-founder, Chris Roy, um, also came from the membrane industry, had been a uh, field engineer at Veolia. So he had come from a larger water treatment company and had been using different species of membranes and had very firsthand experience with the challenges those products ran into and how the value of what our technology platform, how that would have changed the outcomes in many of the, the spaces he worked in. And so I had actually been presenting in front of the, the MIT Water Innovation Prize. So just up on a stage talking to a crowd of 200 people. Um, and Chris Roy came up to me afterwards and said, you know, if, if, if you're serious, if this is real, if you're not just, you know, up there telling a telling story, um, I got to quit my job and I got to work for you because because I know exactly how valuable this could be for the industry. And so um, Chris also, second Chris, also got um, connected to to the inventor who who is a senior advisor at the company. Um, and once he got his hands on the technology, he was really impressed with with the performance that he saw. So part of the, the early magic of this was there had been laboratory data produced. And so there was that initial point of evidence this was a really step change, almost binary outcome. Things you couldn't do with other filters suddenly were possible. And that just opened the doors to all sorts of markets and applications. So that was sort of the first piece. And the second piece was part of the, the, the genius of, of the chemistry of how you could make membranes from these materials was there was a, there was a path to scalability that was perhaps rare in a lot of lab-grown inventions where the, the idea is to create a new performance, to create a new uh, new compound, a new capability. It is not always easy. And I think many new technologies struggle with that. How do you scale out of the lab? It's not easy to have the innovation still be viable when you try to produce it at a, at a commercial volume, commercial scale. And just for, for features of, of this chemistry platform, we could see a direct path to how this was going to be produced at scale using existing equipment, existing supply chains, knowing that what we're doing here would translate well into the next stage, gave us confidence that this was not going to be an academic project that you know really only existed in a very curated lab environment, but that we could quickly produce in a way that was going to be functional for the real world. Um, and that, that sort of focus on design for manufacturing was was one of the first efforts that we as a as a leadership team really emphasized how we were pooling our resources and what milestones we were trying to achieve we had to make the product in a way where it wasn't just a, a laboratory demonstration but was something that someone could put their hands on so focusing on the on the product side in itself i mean like if you could walk us through the the process then we can i mean how many type of different type of uh, membranes you guys are using i mean 
how do you articulate the, the, the product itself? How does it work? I mean, what type of waste are you able to, to capture? I mean, what is so unique? Uh, what is your, your secret sauce that help the, maybe the, the, the audience here who are listening to the to podcast again not uh, see you? Uh, help them maybe to visualize the, the whole value chain and, and secret uh, source that you have there. So whenever I, uh, I help try to visualize what is a membrane, right? What is a filter? Start with a coffee filter, right? It's a semi-permeable barrier that removes things based on the size of the pores. So in a coffee filter, it's going to retain your coffee grounds and it's going to allow the water and the caffeine and the color and the flavor compounds to pass through, right? So that's what a membrane does. It separates things based on its pore size. Um, in our case, uh, we're talking about nanoscale pores. So these are pores that are able to remove um, not just visually you know, compounds that contribute to, to color or to, or to water clarity, but that can even be dissolved species in, in some cases. So very, very, very fine pores. Um, if you took your coffee filter and you, re you know, reached into your kitchen cabinet, you grabbed canola oil or some, some grease-like compound, right? And you try to smear that all over your filter and then you stuck it in your coffee pot, you're not going to get a lot of coffee permeating through the membrane, right? Oils, greases, they love to stick and clog up those pores. You'll have a bunch of water sputtering out the top and it'll be a mess. Um, but that's that's the first place where we talk about differentiation of this, this chemistry platform. Most membranes, and if you go to the market leaders, you'll see things like less than one part per million oil and grease, or you can't use this product, or, you know, expected fouling behavior, you know, voids your warranty. And that's just, it's been a known limitation of membrane products. You, you really can't use them in, in organic heavy streams because of the rate with which they clog. So we're working with a, a brand new chemistry, a brand new materials platform. Um, where the name comes from, Zwitterco, is because our chemistry is a Zwitter ionic copolymer. Um, effectively, we're working with some of the most hydrophilic water-loving materials on the planet. And the importance of working or making a membrane out of something that is ultra, ultra hydrophilic is if you put that membrane in a, in a process stream, you're trying to treat wastewater, that membrane is going to grab water molecules and hold on to them, creating almost a, a water barrier, a boundary layer, um, almost a shield where if you were an organic molecule, an oil, fat, a protein, and you were trying to impact that surface and stick to either the surface or to get stuck inside the pores, You'd actually have to break through a water layer where that sort of hydrated boundary keeps the membrane from ever having things that stick to it. So the first feature of why this chemistry is so interesting is because of that hydrophilicity. But the, the more sort of subtle but powerful detail here is membranes are not a two-dimensional surface. They're a three-dimensional matrix. They have pores, right? They have a channel with which water is going to pass through. And it's that channel that you really want to protect because most membranes are ruined when stuff gets stuck inside the, you know, the matrix, the sponge-like uh, three-dimensional layer. Our membranes are, are made in such a way that the hydrophilic uh, uh, sort of compound within, within the material is not just visible at the surface, but the entire pore channel itself is made of that hydrophilic behavior, the, the Zwitter ion. So you end up having this fouling resistance or this fully water uh, sort of hydrated uh, condition all the way through the active layer of the membrane. So nothing can get stuck 
to the pores. Even if a molecule is small enough to make its way inside the membrane, it's still going to be like in a water slide. It'll just sort of pass all the way through. It won't end up clogging up that internal matrix. So when we clean our membranes, and this is this is where the real impact to our to our users is, when we clean the membranes, we're able to wash away any accumulated gunk or aggregated material that forms a cake on the surface and basically uncover a brand new membrane, a virgin membrane, just from a very simple cleaning cycle. So while a standard product put into a feed with lots of oil and fat would be irreversibly clogged, no amount of cleaning, no amount of scouring could get you full performance recovery. And so you're talking about how many cycles before I just can't get any water to pass through and I'm throwing that membrane out and replacing it with a new one. So Whitaker's membranes can be installed and run cycle after cycle for years, which totally changes the operating cost and sort of the ease of use or the durability of that system to be able to do these intense process separations without seeing the membrane be a point of failure. So you can just continue running for years and years um, and, and do so at a, at, a, at a very efficient cost. So out of your curiosity to really fully understand, um, so this membrane, like where does all the, the waste that you guys like uh, stop through the through the membrane uh, goes? Like what is the extraction process that is uh, that is in place? And what is the volume of uh, wastewater that you are able to uh, to treat uh, through the membrane? Is like is it like one large pipe? So it's like a multitude of uh, like smaller pipe. Uh, how large can you uh, can you go with uh, this type of membranes? So membranes are a separation tool. So one stream comes in and continuously two streams come out. So it's constantly performing uh, the separation or the concentration. You're, you're taking out whatever the membrane retained as a, as a side stream. It's sort of the systems are ported so that you can access or extract both fluid streams that, that continuously. So what we think about is a term called recovery, right? What percentage of water coming in exits as clean permeate or filtered water and what concentration do you apply to all the material that's retained? Um, we are often seeing anywhere from 85, 90, 95% clean water recovery. So it could be up to a 20X concentration of the retained material. Um, we've even had some applications where we've hit 99, so 100X concentration. So that can take fluids that you, know, you uh, imagine a, a jar of water and you're, you're, you're shaking it around. You can sort of imagine the viscosity of that fluid, right? It behaves like water. We'll take that kind of fluid and we'll end up concentrating all the organic material so high that it ends up looking like peanut butter in the jar by the time it comes out of the membrane system. So very, very heavy dewatering, much higher viscosity once you have it exit the system. And that means that it's that much easier to transport. It's that much easier to dry. It's that much easier to turn into a valuable co-product if you can take all of the water out and really concentrate that material up. So trying to hit those high recoveries is often an advantage gives the customer back as much clean water as they can, as we can offer them and they can use and helps with that cost of whatever final disposal or repurposing happens from the retained material. From a volume standpoint, uh, membranes are modular. So you can create systems with more and more membrane elements. They're referred to the, the cartridges where one cartridge has a certain amount of membrane area in it. And you know, we've designed systems that are treating 100,000 gallons a day, a million gallons a day. I mean, all of that is just sort of stacking up more elements and more housings and a larger, larger array of membrane systems. And that's all part of the design process as we are working with um, you know, a customer in the 
early technology evaluation and piloting stages, we're also thinking about those budgetary estimates for given how much water you have and what water recovery target you'd like to get to, this is how many elements and this is the system design that's going to be required. So all, all of those membranes are always containing those uh, cartilage, like uh, a little bit the one that uh, you can use to filter your water with uh, um, charcoal and, and others. So it's really like this cartilages like system, a larger scale, I believe, uh, for the, uh, the industrial level than uh, the one that you have uh, maybe at home. Um, so question regarding like the, the, and you mentioned that I think was very interesting. It is always like this focus on how can we uh, produce that at scale and keep the, uh, I would say, the, the same uh, value and property than what we had initially in the in the lab there. Um, how, how is your production process? Uh, what is uh, today? Uh, how are you producing today? Are you and what's your plan in the next uh, uh, 24 months? Are you looking for like uh, larger facilities, uh, centralized, decentralized? Um, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so we, we work with a number of manufacturing partners today. So we have designed and uh, sort of figured out the recipe and, and the processes to do both our large volume polymer production, how the membrane gets coated and formed into a, a flat sheet that can be then assembled into an element, how that element is assembled and how we do the quality testing. So each one sort of follows a different a different stage and we, we work with different partners in each one. Um, so from a, from a scalability perspective, once you can make membrane in a in a roll-to-roll process, which is or a web conversion process, it's um, the way that laminated products, stickers, thin films are made of these sort of long uh, rolls that get wound and unwound, and you're either applying different coatings or you're curing at different stations or you're putting them through different uh, you know, drying stages. There are lots of different products that are sort of made on a conventional roll-to-roll process. Once you can conform your manufacturing of the membrane to that equipment and to that assembly, you can make vast quantities of membrane very quickly. So you know, we can make miles of membrane in a given day or production run. And we're sort of not capacity limited at this stage in terms of the, the number of elements that we could produce. Our suppliers have lots of capacity and we've got a, a pretty good process for how we think about ordering and demand planning. So from a large volume production standpoint, that supply chain is, is using um, a number of existing contract manufacturers. One of the things that came out of our Series A financing round last year was so much of the commercial development so far has come from our first commercial product, but there's a lot of exciting opportunities to take this chemistry and make other filtration capabilities out of it as well. So in order to really accelerate and own that product development cycle, we are investing in, and actually in a couple months we'll be opening, um, sort of fully, fully commissioning um, a 30,000 square foot production complex in Massachusetts, where we're going to have end to end membrane production capability, not necessarily for, for large volume production, but for prototyping and for iteration and for taking a new batch of polymer with new capabilities and turning that into a testable prototype in, in just a matter of days or weeks. And that speed of those learning cycles and having the equipment that we can use to master the manufacturing process, understand our, our tolerances, understand our quality program, be able to come in and train our partners on that equipment is going to allow us to really hone in on the, the process for, for innovating off of this platform, right? Not just making one product, but having an organization that is prepared to continually develop and expand what's possible with membranes. And that this facility is going to own you know, everything from the lab stage 
to the production floor, the whole learning journey um, all throughout. So we're, we're really excited to get to see this be part of how we think about the company growing is we've had this product that we've been, been using successfully in, in a number of applications. But as we think about more and more membranes used for food processes or for desalination or for other applications of challenging separations, um, there's there's a whole lot of water out there and there's a lot of customers with lots of exciting challenges. And we'd like to be able to provide a suite of tools that can help solve whatever kind of process separation challenges out there um, and help people manage their water as sustainably as they can. Speaking a little bit about the, the, the existing business model that you guys have, uh, can you tell us a bit more about it? Uh, what's your maybe unit cost compared to other alternatives on the on the market? Uh, speaking about those uh, those membranes and what's your uh, future production? I see that uh, you guys have a lot of like uh, different uh, you know avenues to uh, to create growth here uh, and serve uh, better cost. I mean, better the customer, so it's uh, very exciting. So. Zwerko sells the membranes, right? We focus on the, the component that is based on our, our technology. But a membrane isn't operable unless it exists in a system. And that system has to be designed and fabricated. It has controls, it has instrumentation, it's got pumps and valves and pressure vessels and everything else needed to get fluid from where it is into that membrane so that the separation can be performed and, and can be extracted. So when we think about uh, a lot of our projects where someone is thinking about new equipment for the first time, making that investment in infrastructure, they're going to need someone to help with the fabrication and delivery of all of that equipment. And oftentimes there's more than just the Zwitterco system being installed. You might have the bulk solids pretreatment, or you might be doing desalination or final polishing. So we work with um, a, a sort of a cohort of systems integrators or engineering companies whose sort of bread and butter business is taking different technologies and integrating them together into the most efficient total solution for, for an end user. And so while we will work with a lot of the end users directly and help build that applications understanding, I mean, how could these technologies be used to solve the problems that you guys are seeing, we'll often either bring in or we'll work collaboratively from the start with one of our, our preferred systems partners. And we'll say, look, Switterco is going to go demonstrate the membrane performance and understand key parameters. The systems group is going to start looking at the site and some of the either civil or, or logistical parameters. We'll, we'll work together on the overall design and we'll, we'll provide a budgetary estimate to, to the end user. Um, it's been a really profitable relationship for both parties here because we can help unlock new treatment solutions that can give our partners new ways to, to help serve their customers. And we can have partners who do the job of the, the system design and delivery that is not core to Zwitterco's business, right? We're, we really focus on the membrane um, and, and continuing to push the boundary on, on performances. So from a cost perspective, it's interesting. When you're talking about putting new equipment in the field, you're not just saying, hey, you spent this much on that membrane, here's a new membrane, you know, how do the cost lifespan differences shake out? We're talking about you're loading your wastewater up onto a truck. And you're driving that truck 100 miles away for discharge, and you're spending 30 or 40 or 30 or 40 dollars per thousand gallons on that discharge. We can provide you an integrated solution that either you can buy up front, and you'll get a payback based on the, the difference between that upfront investment and all the savings from all that current expense that you're that you're spending, or one of our partners or some of our financing partners can actually capitalize all this equipment and provide it to you in a water as a service model. And you're paying $30 per thousand gallons today, 
you can get your water for 12 now or 10 now. And that that delta in savings is, is all sort of operating benefit to, to the end user. So um, we, we often do a, a pretty thorough economic analysis with every project. What's your cost of discharge? What is the value created if you can reuse that water and offset water that you might otherwise have to be buying um, or sewer fees that you're paying just as a route of disposal? Um, we, in a lot of our projects, there has been a, a new product stream that has emerged. And so there's a new value creation opportunity that gets factored into the economics. So um, as a general standpoint, when someone is urgently interested in, in looking at new treatment technologies, it's, it's often because they've got a, a challenging economic situation and we are regularly providing solutions that are at or below the cost of discharge. Whatever you were doing today, you know, especially if it's something like hauling or you're paying heavy surcharges on discharge, we, we can often cut that cost in half um, and help you save all of that water along the way. Last question on my side. Um, can you tell us a bit more about like the, your competition today uh, in the US, in the rest of the world, maybe? I mean, why are you guys different and maybe better? How do you compare your solution uh, to other uh, solution available in the market or yeah, unique on your on your field right now? So there's there's sort of three places that we think about what does competition look like for us? There's other emerging technologies, right? Other membrane companies that are working on advanced materials. There are non-membrane-based technologies that might be used for similar treatment of, of hard-to-treat waste streams. And both of those two are, are important, but I would say the water industry is growing rapidly and there's lots of different nuances for what job can be best done by what piece of technology. And more often than not, where there is overlap with some other technology providers in one market, there's complements in another market, right? In certain markets, we displace chemically assisted um, coagulation and flocculation, right? You don't have to use chemistry to extract organic material. You can use Witterco instead. But in other markets, that same process is, is the best tool to remove bulk solids and let Zwitterco do a job of, of further treatment afterwards. So it's, it's sort of a, when we think about the growth of the regulatory requirements, the growth of the interest in advanced treatment technologies, um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, market available for lots of different new technology providers. Um, and I'd say where Zwitterco really specializes, I think we do have a, a, a pretty strong sort of defined competitive boundary where there really aren't other filtration products that can directly mechanically perform the filtration that, that we can offer. Um, and we're going after a very specific challenge, helping you get to a quality of treatment where you are either safe to discharge or you can do final polishing to get you to, to water reuse. And that that's a job that we don't see too many people trying to specifically do with another type of solution. I'd say of both of those two classes of competitors, new emerging technologies, other non-membrane species, the number one competitor, absolutely, hands down. Number one competitor is the drain, doing nothing, continuing to discharge the way that, that you were um, because overcoming that inertia and overcoming the, the history of the way you've been doing things for however many years, you know, what's the pressure to, to change or adopt? And I'd say that, that pressure, we are most comforted by the fact that we have so many customers and partners who've raised their hand and said, I don't want to keep doing things the way that I have been. I, I want to think about new solutions. So it's a challenge. Water is a, is a, is a tough, can be a very slow market at times. Um, there's a lot of behavior change and adoption risk to consider, but I have, I have, you know, the five years I've been running the company, I've been really impressed 
by how uh, how we've been received and, and how much interest there is from folks that they may not know what the right tools to use are, but they're really eager to, to learn about what's possible. So last, last question on my side, uh, and that's more like a personal question uh, that uh, we ask uh, along the show to uh, every uh, every guest here. What's your personal opinion on the on the climate crisis? I mean, what would you say to the people who feel you know demoralized and afraid of all the already visible consequences that uh, that we have? Are we doomed? Uh, what do you what would you tell them? Um, it can certainly feel uh, demoralizing when when we read the news every day. But I would I would maybe point to two things. Um, over the over the analogs of history, I think many generations have thought, well, this was the end. You know, this 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 chapter is the one where where society is doomed, and and that's proven to not be the case. Perhaps generation after generation. So there is a there's a fortitude of of society of the human spirit to, to continue finding ways through through tough challenges. Um, and, and while there are many in the world today, I think there is just as many people who are seeking to rise to the occasion. Um, and this is maybe my second point is invest in the communities where people are trying to do what they can to make a difference because those environments don't feel demoralizing. They are so rich with ingenuity and creativity and vigor to put one's time and effort towards trying to solve big challenges in, in a way that helps you go to sleep at night knowing that you're, you're trying to make a difference. Um, and there are so many companies, there are so many organizations, there are so many missions and efforts going on to tackle all sorts of, of sustainability and other related problems. Um, I think there's a, there's a momentum that has to be built. A lot of the awareness of climate change and, and what solutions need to be deployed quickly is something that's perhaps only, um, uh, you know, matriculated into the public awareness in the last couple of decades, but there are so many people that are trying to rise to the challenge right now and being a part of those teams is really rewarding. So what's uh, what's next for Zutter and how the community of uh, investors, founders, uh, experts listening to the show can, uh, can help you? Sure. Well, uh, first, if anyone has any tough wastewater that they'd like to uh, treat or, or think about a different way of managing, I uh, would certainly love, love to speak with you. Um, as a company where we are right now, we just raised our Series A, um, we are uh, deploying millions of gallons a day of treatment capacity and are growing in our, our list of, of customers that we're serving and partners that we're working with. Um, I'd say, honestly, please, please stay stay in touch and, and check out our website for, for careers and positions that are opening. Um, we're growing fast. We're going to be opening this new facility that's going to have a lot of new R&D and operations roles that are going to be coming online. Um, if you're excited about anything that you've heard, um, thinking about what, what this technology is or the mission the company is trying to accomplish, please stay in touch. Um, we're, we're excited for the journey to come. Thank you so much, Alex, for your time. Incredible insights on the, on the industry as well and uh, everything that you do to, uh, to have a, a cleaner and better world. So thank you so much. Thank you, Guillaume. This was wonderful. Looking forward to a chat soon. Take care. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech for Climate podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. And see you next time.